Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca. And I'm Gianna. This week, we are talking about the visual history of drag, and more specifically, our everyday consumption of it. From makeup tutorials to slang to even a particular Disney villain, drag may hold a larger presence in pop than you realize. And in the complete opposite direction of drag, we are jumping into a metaphorical pile of leaves with some fall-themed art news. So, Gianna, are you ready to fall for this art pop talk? I am ready indeed. Hello, my darling. Hi. (laughs) We're struggling over here this evening at APTHQ. Sometimes I feel like I'm never not struggling, you know, but it's all good. <laughs> it's just we tweak. We got it. <laughs> it is. It has been a particularly like a very busy week because you had your birthday. You were doing lots of celebrating and there was lots of work stuff that I was dealing with, too. So, yes, me as well. I, I feel as though I'll have some exciting things to share with you guys that I, I can't quite share with you all all yet but you know just a day (laughs) i know that doesn't really do much for you guys uh not riveting content but i am very much loling at the art news of it all today and i i feel like it's could be very much stigmatized as our straight culture story versus (laughs) gay culture story which was not planned but it does work. Actually, that's very funny. That's really funny. I will say when Gianna, you know, we were talking about what art news to do and she was like, what about this article? And I was like, really? (laughs) At first I was like, I do not know about this. You know, what's funny, Bianca, um, what was the art news story you wanted to do? It was about like foot, a footprint or some shit. There was like this wild archeological find about, footprints which now makes what everything that basically archaeologists had believed about the first peoples of the American regions like false so now archaeologists are reevaluating who was here first kind of basically and that is not where we (laughs) and you know what I said I said nah I want to talk about the pumpkin spice latte <laughs> so Gianna are we ready for this art news I you know what I I think I've I've been ready sorry science you're gonna have to take a back burner today <laughs> all right so actually I will say this past Saturday <laughs> CBS we love CBS, <laughs> my main source of news. Actually, had an amazing story about the pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> I cannot believe that we're doing this for art news. I just needed you guys to know that I felt strongly enough about <laughs> this to not talk about the coming about of human beings, but. Gianna, I'm glad you brought it up. I'm glad you brought it up because every you have to watch the actual story from Michelle Miller that she did on CBS Saturday. It was just so <laughs> sweet and good, and I actually like I loved everything about it. And in the in the 
report, she does interview someone from a science museum, which I will talk about, but it is museum related. So we're, we're on track here. <laughs> so basically, um, I am going to run through the main points of this story that was presented about the pumpkin spice latte and its creation. And then Gianna and I are just going to talk about this famed beverage and its artful implications. So in 2001, Peter Dukes created essentially what would become the pumpkin spice latte. So Michelle Miller is interviewing Peter Dukes, this creator who is now the director of global growth and concepts at Starbucks, which actually sounds like a very cool job. Um, but basically, at at that time in 2001, Starbucks was coming off of the, the success of the peppermint mocha, which is my favorite holiday themed beverage from Starbucks peppermint mocha on top so that drink had a lot of success and um basically the team came to Peter and said you know look we're wanting to create something for the fall um and Peter Dukes is talking to Michelle about how they had all these kind of what you would typically think of as fall flavors so like cinnamon themed like very um spicy kind of uh Scentful is that is that a right word that I'm looking for? Uh, like very sh- very strong kind of sense. He was like describing all these like what you would think like fall smells like. You know what I mean? But he says that the PSL was the flavor that almost wasn't because whenever they presented all these other kind of like cinnamon and whatever drinks to taste testers at Starbucks, no one's initial reaction was like mm, pumpkin. You know why? Because pumpkin is not, like, the best squash. You know what I mean? Like, we we love a good pumpkin pie, but it's not something that, like, pumpkin is not normally something that, like, we would have thought to be consuming in beverage form before the PSL. Well, even the essence of a pumpkin pie is more like the allspice of it all, which is really what the pumpkin spice latte is about you know the pumpkin is just there for texture right but not in the in the psl because (laughs) getting that like "Mm, squashy Mm, junky (laughs) thing that you're like slurping through like a boba straw so i got a seed (laughs) (laughs) Mm, toasty Mm. so The drink debuted in 2003, and Starbucks has since sold more than 500 million (laughs) PSLs. That's a disturbing fact. It is. So here's where I get um, Catherine Franson, and she is from the Science Museum of Virginia. And she said, quote, This is something marketing and economic classes will be studying for ages. Um, And then... When they are interviewing Catherine, she talks about how our addiction to the PSL originally really came through sensory explorations of of our brain. So pumpkin pumpkin spice, the pumpkin spice latte reaches our memories and that sense of nostalgia through its sugar content. And originally, the drink had no real pumpkin whatsoever. Again, because pumpkin is not like, mmm, tasty. Like, I just want like a glob of pumpkin today. Not really. Like, anything that you think about that's 
that's pumpkin flavored, that's pumpkin spiced, pumpkin bread. It all comes through th- through those additions, like what Gianna was saying, through the spices. Um, and so in 2015, so 12, 12 years after the, the drink debuted, the recipe changed for cleaner ingredients. So um, that same year in 2015, PSL also opened its own verified social media feeds. It has an Instagram and it has a Twitter. Also and, disturbing. Yeah, also very, very odd. This was really my favorite part. Um, they were interviewing someone who said, quote, PSL brought fun to coffee and brought people that weren't purists into cafe culture. Once we started making it more approachable, people started thinking this was less a utilitarian drink to have before work. It gave us the confidence to do what you wanted with coffee. And I want to unpack that quote here in a second, but I just think that like that approach to the pumpkin spice latte is like what APT is doing for the art world. So whenever this, I just thought that was like a great quote, like brought people that weren't purists into cafe culture. And then basically they kind of closed the story with this is a flavor that people love to hate um and they were talking about how you know it'd be it'd be great if real pumpkin was in there but like it's more the marketing of it all like and as as we'll get to here in a second like pumpkin spice is now is now a huge marketing point i mean it is everywhere in every single like fall designed little treat that you could possibly get so jenna let's talk about your opinions on the psl are you someone that loves to hate it do you like pumpkin spice I am not opposed to it. I've been known to have the (laughs) occasional pumpkin spice latte. I mean, I'm sure that I probably have maybe one every fall season. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, like, I'm not really like a person that does a daily Starbucks run um, because I'm a person that has no money. So (laughs) all my money (laughs) is saved on other things but I also just think over the years I'm not saying that I am a purist coffee person Mm -hmm. like blah if you give me like a shot of espresso I'm like oh god like it's it's too much but you know I have my little almond milk creamer that I use in 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 my coffee but uh, perhaps my newfound dietary restrictions have also changed the way Mm -hmm. in which I consume these kinds of beverages Mm -hmm. um which maybe is, I think for me, I can always take conversations about food culture in just a totally other direction mm-hmm. and how, you know, pumpkin spice latte are like for the masses that can consume pumpkin spice latte. Um, so, it, but to me, the interesting thing is how it's developed in like September 22nd doesn't mark the first day of fall. The first day of fall is when Starbucks releases an image of pumpkin spice latte and it is soon again on the market. That is the first day of fall. So it's just wildly fascinating when our consumer market is what is driving mm-hmm. our season, seasonal awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's really kind of why I wanted to talk about it, because it's not just about the pumpkin spice latte. It's about the pumpkin spice 
season. And I think in kind of talking about this quote from the story, like this is a season or like a term that people like to hate on. And that's kind of like my jokingness of maybe even just like Southern white suburban women that are all for like the fall season and the fall aesthetic. And let me pull out my rider boots and my like inflatable jacket thing and go get a pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> it's what like is a that weird... a life preserver? <laughs> is that a life preserver? <laughs> Little Marty McFly humor for you today. <laughs> hey, he made it work though. That was an iconic look. So maybe maybe these women have a point, but it's a funny thing that happens every year. Just like how we joke about, I don't know, like men pulling out their like Patagonia like hoodies or whatever. Like it's the same shit. Yeah. Well, this is just also really interesting, I think, in terms of last week's episode where we were like reevaluating how critical we can be of this perceived and and realistic culture of like white suburban women with the Ray Dunn pottery conversation. But like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, that quote like... you know, when you take a step back and like, especially when we think about what we're doing here at Art Pop Talk and thinking about making art accessible and art doesn't have to be for academics and like, we want to be involved in art culture and museum culture, but it would be great if we didn't have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for for that acceptance into that culture. And mm-hmm. so it's really interesting to think about what the PSL has done for this quote cafe culture. Um, and I think that's, that's for me where like the, the really like interesting point of the conversation lies is like just making things accessible and like, I don't know that sense of belonging in something or that, that idea that you can like something and have something and be a part of something and, and it's there for you every season and it, it returns for you and it's it's like it's okay to like it but it's just that that contrast because i am not big pumpkin spice fan i i love pumpkin pie at thanksgiving i love a good piece of pumpkin pie but that's pretty much it for me you know it's i it's will not, say were um, you going to say those little debbie snacks no, but I did have one. When I went home, mom bought them, and I was like, oh, yeah, Little Debbie pumpkin cookie. Those are, those slap. Those are freaking good. <laughs> those are our, our PSL. But um, again, it's like all sugar, and it's nostalgic for our childhood when, like, the fall season came and mom would pack those in our lunches. And they also don't taste like yeah. pumpkin. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't taste like anything. <laughs> They're, like, also, like, gooey. Yeah, they're good. They're not very good. I love them. (laughs) But (laughs) I wonder if art will ever, like, get to that point where it feels like, or I don't know, I think there are some, like, art movements that definitely have reached that point. Like, you could talk about Jeff Koons and the balloon dog. Like, I feel like that has, like, a similar, I don't know. Some, something no, about I, that has like a similar point of reference with the PSL. I, I definitely understand what you mean. And I, I feel as though we've talked about that and how we have to catch ourselves sometimes when people are talking about perhaps like a surreal experience they had and they're talking about 
maybe something like Starry Night and how like we that's a painting that we referred to and have made fun of and and how people kind of like swarm that at the MoMA but even this happened to me recently at a person come up to me and they were talking about like oh my gosh and I didn't even know that was there Mm. and like in my head I'm like like I I can be like a snob in my head because I have access to this information and I've had the luxury to see it a couple times but I'm not going to actively shit on somebody's art experience. Like that's just goes against everything I believe in. But you do have those like moments where you love to hate on things. Yeah. Yeah. Good story, Gianna. Very good pick. Wow. Well, you know, it's, it's no development of humanity, but it is a development of the consumer seasonal culture. You're welcome. (laughs) I'm ready for the peppermint mocha. You do like a peppermint mocha. I I'd love say it. that I'm if I had to pick like a fun flavored coffee, it's uh the gingerbread latte that comes out in Christmas. I do like that one. I Gianna, um I hear from Dr. Elizabeth Green that they are bringing the gingerbread latte back this year because let me tell you something. Dr. Green loves a gingerbread latte, and they haven't had it on the menu, I guess, the past few years. And she may correct me about this, but I am pretty sure that she's, like, written to Starbucks in some form about, like, bringing back the gingerbread (laughs) latte. I don't think I've ever had it. I like that chestnut praline one. That's good. I I guess I just didn't know. But again, like, it's been a rough year, folks. (laughs) You know, we have a buy me a coffee account also yeah, on, buy, on buy the topic of this of this subject, you know, literally buy me a coffee <laughs> or a matcha so I can drink it. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is it, Jonah, that is a fantastic plug. So head on over to our social media bio, click that link, buy me a coffee. We're, we're thirsty for Yes. Pumpkin spice latte. Mm, yum. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I am ready to switch from one cultural phenomenon to another. So are we ready for today's art pop talk? We are talking about drag culture and its significance on pop culture. Drag culture has affected every aspect of our way of life, from visual culture, fashion, beauty, and performance, but also how we communicate, not only through a visual language, but talking that audible language, creating slang, and how that has become colloquial in the everyday. The origins of drag culture and the action of cross-dressing can be taken way back and even cross-culturally. So we're going to recap that history, talk about our unawareness and ignorance of consuming drag and queer culture um, that can threaten uh, and lead to that erasure of it at the same time. And Bianca is going to address some of that with a discussion on the drag queen divine inspiring the look of a familiar Disney villain. Yes, I am really excited to talk about this topic. I feel like we throughout APT have kind of mentioned like our different um, affirmations of drag culture or love for drag culture or I don't know different associations that we have with it but I'm excited to dive a little deeper today. 
Yeah, so I'll be referring to an article today from New Face written by Kaylin Tran, which I'm laughing because in my text I have possessed some questions, but I definitely meant pose some questions for us today. Pose. Getting into the spooky season. Live. Pose. Work. <laughs> pose. Oh my god. So how did something once considered to be a shameful type of entertainment blossom into the revered art form that it is today? So let's start with some history that she lays out for us, shall we? In order to understand the importance of drag culture, it's helpful to first know what it is. According to Joe E. Jeffries, a drag historian and professor of theater studies at New York University, it's whenever someone puts, quote, on clothes that is considered to be not appropriate to them, and then wearing it with some type of ironic distance. By Jeffrey's definition, drag can be traced back to ancient Native American, indigenous South American, Egyptian ceremonies, and Japanese theater. Jonathan David, author of the book Drag Diaries, wrote that religious and spiritual occasions from past civilization called for drag clothing. In Japanese theater, men were made up and dressed to look like female characters when performing folk dances. The practice of men playing female roles can also be seen in ancient Greek and Shakespearean theater. The term drag originated in Britain. It was first used as a subject of English theater slang in the 1870s to refer to the long skirts that men wore on stage. Men continued to wear exaggerated makeup and clothing to play female roles until it finally became legal for women to perform in 1660. Soon men started impersonating females and performing in vaudeville shows which are a type of entertainment featuring specialty acts like burlesque, comedy, song, and dance. William Dorsey Swan, the first person to call himself a drag queen, began to host drag balls in the 1880s. Drag was never associated with homosexuality until sexology, the study of sex and sexual practices amongst different cultures, developed ideas about a third sex in an attempt to rationalize why drag queens existed. By the 1930s, the scientific conversation had worked its way into the popular culture and linked drag with homosexuality. As a result, drag became nearly shunned. Masquerade laws punished those who cross-dressed in public. Gay bars had to operate underground, though we know that those were constantly raided by police. This continued until the Stonewall Riots in 1969. When the first gay pride parade was held a year later, gradual attempts for the LGBTQ community grew. Though drag queens and transgender individuals were still marginalized more than their queer peers, drag icons began to emerge. The culture slowly began to re-enter mainstream society. Signs of the acceptance of drag can be seen in films, like in the actor Tim Curry's Rocky Horror Picture Show, a classic that we'll soon be watching. And celebrities like musicians David Bowie's dramatic style. Other things entering our film history, like the documentary Paris is Burning, which I'll refer to a little bit later in terms of some of the language that we use that is now colloquial, um, followed this story for about seven years and about a drag ball in New York City. And then we had the movie Birdcage, which was a comedy about the gay couple who ran a drag um, uh, cabaret. And... Uh, that really kind of 
helped grow in American culture. And then the list of other role, mo- role models go on and on. And we're going to talk about one in particular, as we mentioned in the intro, um, relating to even something so mainstream like Disney. One of whom, RuPaul Charles, has become one of the most well-known drag queens in the community. Her 1996 song, Supermodel, You Better Work, launched the success of her performance career. Her competitive reality show, RuPaul's Drag Race, premiered in 2009. So been on for 12 years. And it has opened up a space for drag voices to be seen, heard, and accepted. So even though most of drag history addresses men who perform as women, drag kings also make up a large part of community. Kings like Murray Hill perform as masculine personas. The first international drag king extravaganza was held in 1999, where drag kings gathered in non-competitive environments with their fans. So one of the things that... I'm going to talk about, or I guess two of the things I'm going to talk about is going to be beauty and fashion and then go into language. And I really liked the way that this article kind of laid out this history for us, kind of giving us this debrief, but then also talking about it in modern terms, because so much of our beauty and our fashion and our language, our slang is attributed to drag queens and drag culture but we don't always acknowledge that. So I'm gonna continue to read from this article and then Bianca and I, you can talk about it a little bit and just share our thoughts. So many makeup trends. We all survived the 2012 beauty guru era, or at least I did, but that are now popular amongst beauty gurus and makeup fanatics come from drag community. We have those cut creases, we have contouring, we have baking. I mean, we were all baking our faces so much, 2012 through 2014, the banana powder, like couldn't get enough of it, couldn't keep it in stock on the shelves. But those are all techniques that are used from these types of performers, and that is what embodies these characters. The signature heavy and dynamic application is used for several reasons. As men who are playing feminine roles, they need to completely change their masculine features to be more dainty or feminine, or again, put on that persona that they're trying to create, whatever that may be. Additionally, drag queens perform on stage under bright lights, which means that they, you know, need that makeup to stay. I think any kind of stage performer will tell you that they enhanceify, you know, their makeup so you can see it from also a far distance. Getting into maybe more familiar territory here, the Kardashians are known for their use of contouring, and Kylie Jenner is famous for her plump, overlined lips, all techniques coming from drag communities. Even one of the Kardashians' makeup artists, Joyce Bonelli, has previously stated that her techniques are inspired by, quote, drag anything and everything. This article also states a quote from a celebrity makeup artist, Rennie Vasquez, quote, I don't think that the drag community gets the credit they deserve for the trends that are happening with makeup. So many trends started with the drag community. I would love to see drag get more recognition for it. I think that we're moving into a moment where people are digging in a little deeper and they're like, where did this come from? 
drag queens are starting to get some recognition, but I do feel it's long overdue. So that's kind of the makeup of it all, and let's go into the fashion of it all. Additionally, fashion has also been an area impacted by drag. As a form of entertainment that often involves dressing up in elaborate, fantastical outfits, it's natural that fashion would be influenced. The queens of RuPaul's Drag Race are challenged to make and style their own outfits to walk down the runway. It's a test of creativity and skills when it comes to creating garments. When we consume something like Drag Race, we are in a sense very familiar and excited for what is going to partake there. But then when other designs kind of come out into the fruition, kind of like what we saw with Target happening, um, there was a black queer designer that created this line of really bright, extravagant, interesting dresses that a lot of people made fun of. So I think it's kind of interesting that like we so love and see like consume drag race when we like know and when we're expecting these kind of like fantastical things to 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 appear on our screen but then when we're consumed or we're faced with them in the everyday we're like a little kind of skittish to it or we don't know how we feel about it and then that's where we got a lot of discussion this year so along those lines of being unaware or ignorant to that kind of queer culture that is entering the mainstream or other parts of our consumer world i want to go into language as this article states out um i think it's really really interesting when we use such colloquial terms like slay or yes and that's become such a part of the everyday that there's maybe that stigma to it that that comes from like queer culture and maybe we know that but maybe we're using it in a joking way and we're still not unaware or we're still not aware of its origin and that's precisely what isn't okay, because as this article suggests, it can erase the origin of where it came from. Even the mispronunciation um, that can sometimes come out of that. When things become misheard, misquoted, mispronounced, that's where things get gets lost in history and gets lost in translation. Translation. It becomes this game of of telephone and that's when things also become commodified and and that's when the originators of that slang don't benefit so as this article states while the appropriation of drag language may symbolize the acceptance of the community it also threatens the erasure of significance behind the words these phrases are sometimes adopted by younger generations because they sound cool or catchy, but there's a history of politics, race, and marginalization that goes behind each saying. So I think even things that we've gotten recently, like by Felicia and T, are new kind of colloquial terms that we've all adopted. And I think it's really interesting that the origin of saying yes, Y-A-S, comes from the documentary Paris is Bur Burning, following those individuals in New York and seeing light to, to drag culture. And then those becoming our colloquial terms. But um, so we do have a lot to get into with Bianca's subject for the day, but I would like to hear your thoughts on a lot of these things that are perhaps being lost in translation when it comes to drag history. Yeah, and even as I'm 
thinking about, I don't know, this is just like, I'm like, Rhea just from, again, like our Ray Dunn conversation to the pumpkin spice latte to like drag culture. I feel like the past few weeks we've just been thinking about like, I don't know, like stereotypes in subcultures. And I just think that Mm -hmm. that's like a really interesting dynamic that for whatever reason we've just been thinking about a lot lately what's really interesting to hear you talk about is like I remember when you in particular were really going through that like beauty vlogger phase and it Mm. was just now it's really interesting to not only hear you you talk about it from like thinking about like how you used to intake that imagery but then like that recognition where it's due I just I wonder I don't know like um I don't know. It's just one of those interesting concepts where it's like, where's the boundary between like going too far in your um, in one's use of that visual history? You know what I mean? Like, where is the line between appropriation and copying and and being being inspired by something? I think that's like in terms of like um, art history and kind of visual history. That's like the the line that I'm just like toying around with in my head, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I, I I do think you're you're so right in kind of pointing out the the tone that we are taking in this episode falls in line with even if you want to call it this kind of just surface level digestion into that visual culture that we're consuming. But I think it's just about first breaking that that barrier and asking those questions because what I do find interesting is okay, we have these celebrity makeup artists working for people like the Kardashians, and they've quoted and have acknowledged in some of their statements, oh, drag everything, drag culture, this has helped me create these looks, and that's what I've created for these celebrities for this and this reason. It lasts long, it's exaggerated, so on and so forth. And so it's interesting that we have that acknowledgement from those makeup artists but then once that celebrity and someone that has so much powder, power, powder, powder, <laughs> powder and power, <laughs> like the Kardashians, is that that is where that sentiment gets lost in translation. Yeah. Because that is where things just become consumed and the origin of that history gets gets lost. Mm-hmm. Um, so where is that line? You know, I don't want to dictate the creativity of makeup artists, but even in like, you know, the 2012 to 2014 days or, you know, even a little bit earlier than that, you know, I'd have these beauty gurus and I watch queer beauty gurus. I watch trans beauty gurus, but they weren't drag queens. Like obviously it's, Mm -hmm. it's different. And, you know, they would create these highly embellished full glam looks but then when it became Halloween time, you know, that that's when they would try to kind of do their their more creative, their more fantastical outfits and or makeup looks. And it was even this kind of not a running joke, but they would show us images of maybe the first drag look that they tried to create mm-hmm. and then moving forward, then how that would look and how that would develop. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to like participate in that drag culture and trying to create that look. But, 
But again, where is that line and where is the origin of that history? And like, as a 14 year old, and like, am I under, I, I'm not understanding those connections. I'm just like, right. ooh, makeup, fun, pretty, this is fun to watch, which is okay. But like, where's the line? Also, I think it's interesting. There's a really interesting, like, I don't know if it's a trend on TikTok or just like where makeup artists or just whoever, they're just people. Like on your feed, they're just, they're just like normal people doing a look. You know what I mean? Like, but um, people who distinctively recreate looks from a drag queen themselves. So like I've seen Bianca Del Rio looks like Bianca Del Rio has like a very particular type of makeup that she's always wearing or Trixie Mattel like I've seen people also recreate Trixie Mattel makeup and I think that that's another really interesting aspect to like that that point of admiration I guess like when we're thinking about like not copying but like this is this is like a fan producing a piece of fan art you know what I mean but it's on their bodies and that's another really interesting form of of love and affection for that I think Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think that opens up a whole other conversation about just drag queen fandom and mm-hmm. how to participate in that. I think we could do a really interesting conversation with our friends at Nerdtastic Galaxy, Nebula and Wooper, about fandom culture and drag culture and those intersections and how to participate that in in a loving way, but also understanding what what you're doing and how to do that appropriately so uh, we do have a little bit more to get into but if you want Bianca you want to take a little break that sounds good and then whenever we come back we are going to be talking about divine Welcome back. Um, When Gianna and I started thinking about this topic a long time ago, it was actually kind of spurred by a TikTok where someone was talking about the connection between Ursula in Disney's animated feature, The Little Mermaid, and the drag queen Divine. Um, And there are a few interesting articles that we will link for you um, in our show notes as well about the visual representation of that kind of drag look, those kind of um, drag mannerisms and this kind of campiness that Disney villains take on in their caricature. But today I want to wrap up our episode by talking about, um, again, Divine being the inspiration for Ursula in The Little Mermaid. And some of you may be pretty familiar with this fact. I think like this may have been spurred on by the live action Little Mermaid, actually, because Melissa McCarthy was cast as Ursula or is Melissa McCarthy playing Ursula in the in the um Halle Bailey the live action Ariel not the uh the theatrical performance that was like live on TV yeah I think the 
the movie that feels like it's been in the making forever. Yeah, I like there were two. There was the like live on NBC or whatever performance of The Little Mermaid, and then there's also the movie coming out with Halle Bailey, which I'm excited to see, but. In one of those instances, Melissa McCarthy is cast as Ursula, and I think there was a conversation taking a place about, like, why did why wasn't a drag queen cast to play Ursula? And I have to say, I think Eureka would be a fantastic Ursula. And um, I think October, October 11th or October 1st, um, Shangela, Bob the Drag Queen, and Eureka have season two of their show coming out on HBO as well. So, um those are three queens that come from RuPaul's Drag Race. So if you're interested in a new in a new show from them, um, go to HBO and you can watch it there. Anywho, um, Pat Carroll is actually the the person who voiced Ursula for the movie, but the look and the character design was inspired by the drag queen Divine. Harris Glenn Milstead was born in Baltimore in 1945 and is better known by the stage name Divine. Um, Divine was an actor, singer, and drag queen who was closely associated with the independent filmmaker John Waters. Waters is actually the person who gave Divine that stage name as well. Divine um, had a lot of roles in cinematic and theatrical productions, um, and that included playing Edna Turnblad in the 1988 film version of Hairspray that was directed by Waters. Divine passed away shortly after the release of this movie at the age of 42, but had starred in numerous film projects um, and had also released disco tracks before passing. People Magazine described Divine as the drag queen of the century upon her death. Um, she's remained a cult figure, of course, within the LGBTQ plus community and has provided a lot of inspiration for fictional characters, artworks, and songs. There are various books and documentary films devoted to the life of Divine, including Divine Trash from 98 and I Am Divine from 2013. During production of The Little Mermaid, Ursula's design um, evolved and transformed quite a few times over the making. Animator Glenn Keane's earliest sketches of Ursula were drawn to resemble various film and television actresses of the time who were originally thought that might work for casting as well. So like people from the television show Dynasty, um, that was like a little... A little before The Little Mermaid, but um, there was a short-lived casting of Broadway star Elaine Stritch as Ursula, and that little performance, um, that little kind of mini casting of Ursula or audition inspired um, the animators to design the character as, quote, a tall, thin, regal-looking sea witch based on manta rays and scorpion fish, complete with a long cape. Um, at one point, the character Ursula had also been drawn with spikes to resemble a spinefish. Similarities were first drawn between the character and the persona of Divine after animator Rob Minkoff sketched, quote, a vampy overweight matron, to which then lyricist, producer, and writer Howard Ashman responded, quote, she looks like a Miami beach matron playing mahjong by the pool. The character um, 
that we now see in the film shares Divine's signature eye makeup, jewelry, and body type, while originally was supposed to be sporting a mohawk, which was borrowed from Divine's look in the cult classic Pink Flamingos from 72. Minkoff had been drawing the character with a shark's tail at the time, uh, but then director and screenwriter John Clemens eventually decided to place Ursula's head on top of the body of an octopus, which resulted in what we see now. The animators um, studied the way in which octopuses move, explaining, quote, there was a very kind of seductive and scary aspect, which they incorporated into the character's mannerisms. The Pink Flamingos-inspired hairstyle was eventually discarded because Disney felt like the hairstyle was quote-unquote too over-the-top for the film. Additionally, Ursula's face was also inspired by that of Madame Medusa from Disney's The Rescuers from 1997. Or 1977. That's something that once this uh, this article mentioned that character from The Rescuers, it's like one of those things that is just left in the back of your mind and then when you remember it it's like oh my gosh yeah like I can kind of see the this like idea and the exaggerated makeup features. According to a book The Gospel According to Disney Faith Trust and Pixie Dust the author Mark Pinsky says quote Ursula became the most grotesque characterization Disney had ever created for a female villain at the time. Then there's another book, From Mouse to Mermaid, The Politics of Film, Gender, and Culture. This is a compilation of essays that was first published in 95 that has some super interesting analyses of gender performance that come through in the film overall, um, but with particular focus on the campiness of Ursula's character as well. So I'm going to read from an essay from Laura Sells. This essay is called, Where Do the Mermaids Stand? Voice and Body in the Little Mermaid. In comparison to the original kind of Hans Christian Andersen telling of the Little Mermaid, Sells argues that Disney's version substitutes gender for class and embedded within this classic narrative about an adolescent girl's coming of age is a very contemporary story about the cost pleasures, and dangers of a woman's access to the human world. On one level, Ariel's story is a parable of bourgeois feminist ideas seeking upward mobility and access to a white male system from which she is excluded, a passage that costs Ariel her voice. On the other level, the parable transcends the status quo and offers possibilities for recuperation and resistance, even as Ariel is passed from the arms of her father to the arms of her husband. Sell says that, like, the undoing and pleasures of the Little Mermaid are actually found in the character of Ursula, quote, a drag queen who destabilizes gender as she performs it, who in the dark continent of the feminine is jouissance, the multiplicity of a woman's abundant pleasures. So this article basically says that Ursula is the one who gives Ariel these lessons about womanhood um, and that Ursula offers an important position to resist these kind of usual tellings of womanhood that Disney has kind of previously put forth in their different fairy tales. 
And we all love that song that Ursula sings, you know, when she's down in her cave, she's going to, you know, take Ariel's voice. Um, but she's singing this song about body language. And this author, Laura Sells, argues that Ursula stages a, quote, camp drag show about being a woman in the white male system. And this scene begins kind of backstage where Ursula's getting ready. She's putting on like her lipstick that she kind of squeezes out of that like little, you know, like Fisher shell. Um, oh my God, I love it when she does that. She like squeezes that little like plant and then yes. she like rouges her lips. Yes. Um, and then she kind of has these like exaggerated, this exaggerated form of body language where she's like, shimmying and she's wiggling and her you know tentacles are kind of all over the place um and she even has a feather boa at one point and cell says like decolletage yes yes this performance is a masquerade a drag show starring ursula as an ironic figure and then there in the rest of the essay it's it's interesting where um cells argues that in ursula's drag scene ariel learns that gender is performance Um, and Ursula doesn't really, she doesn't symbolize womanhood, but she performs it in a really interesting way. And of course, um, we could get into a lot of things about, you know, from Judith Butler, gender performance, gender identity. Butler says performativity has to do with repetition, very often with the repetition of oppressive and painful gender norms to force them to re-signify. This is not freedom, but a question of how to work the trap that one is inevitably in. So that is a that was a really interesting article, and I I really enjoyed reading it. Um, there's also you know a lot more to be said about Disney and their um, not just the what they put forth in kind of this idea of the Disney princess, which is I think what a lot of people kind of tend to focus on but how how gender is performed through these animated versions of people um in a class i took you know we talked about princess and the frog and how when they are both frogs you can tell which frog is naveen and which frog is princess uh, tiana because like Tiana has eyelashes and Naveen is like, you know, has no makeup on. <laughs> so there's even these types of like different aesthetics, like different hints of makeup, like within like frogs <laughs> in Princess and the Frog. Um, and well, you the know, same thing can be said for The Lion King, which mm-hmm. is also an interesting example that we can use drag culture and our villains as well. There's this very like, it's like a classical eyelid look where you have like heavy eyeliner, a, like a lifted eye look, a lot of eyeshadow, a darkened halo around your eye that is even used in our villain lion to, in a way, other that lion. <laughs> right, right. And the same thing can be said for Maleficent. Maleficent has like a very distinct like high lifted brow um as well as Cruella de Vil and like I said there are some articles that will link where there's kind of like little brief I guess analyses between like the looks that Disney villains offer and then that that connection to kind of drag culture um which you're right Gianna is meant kind of subconsciously to other that caricature as villainous as evil as different 
So yeah, it's, it's but I, so interesting. And I think what I would like to point out there is that I don't think those things are subconscious. And that's what, I, what I'd like to pinpoint out from our original article. But to a the, little kid, to a little kid who's like intaking those images, like a, a but, child might not know that. Sure, this but, is like drag culture. So it becomes one of those subconscious biases that is like later on built up over time. Sure, but but also for us too and ongoing yeah. as as adults like there's a point there was a point in my in my life in my adulthood where I, you know I started to question those things, but not subconscious to the creators, I guess right. I should say. Yeah. And that's where we need to to talk about that that form of of othering and and that form of cultural cultural erasure that um is is not good (laughs) i think the the kind of reboot of these live action disney movies that Mm -hmm. are coming back they still have the characters still have common characteristics of the animation. And I get that they're trying to hold on to this like nostalgia of the original images, but especially when you're having like real life people put on this performative wear. Mm-hmm. Like I think that becomes a question that we we should be asking. Um, right. or or perhaps a franchise should be asking. Right. And it's interesting that I was kind of I don't know, again, in the case of, like, the Melissa McCarthy, Ursula example, I think a lot of people did know that it was, Mm -hmm. Ursula was inspired by a drag queen. So, like, for why, why are we not getting that questioning with things like Maleficent, the live action one, or, or even with with Cruella? That's another really interesting aspect. But with Cruella, something they did, you know, I, Cruella wasn't my favorite, but I thought it was very interesting that Cruella went to this like thrifted store of the owner who had the persona of a gay man, a gay man in fashion. And she like went to him to help her want to stir up some trouble. And he thought like she was such an icon and such a badass because of her whole fantastical getup. So it's like I Disney is <laughs> For so long been been doing these things and using gay culture but then also like only now they're starting to throw in gay characters but not mainstream characters so right. it just feels like we're continuously like using gay culture and people as props to like fit that narrative mm-hmm. and like that like little i mean it wasn't even a little moment in a cruella like he wasn't like a super reoccurring character but he was a part of her plot. Right. I just, I don't know. It just like, it just didn't settle well with me or I thought sure. it was odd or I don't know. Again, I'm just like, I wasn't into like the prop of it all. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So one thing that I did want to end on is we did just have Bushwick, which is a festival devoted to drag music and love taking place in New York and that happened when it was like September 20th, I think is when it got the recap. It just ended. But there's a quote from this Pride article um, talking about why Bushwick is important. But it said that drag for so many, both performers and spectators, provides an escape into fantasy. Mm. 
And I just, I thought that was really interesting thinking about this conversation of also vilifying Mm -hmm. drag queens and how it's really easy to have villains play that role into the fantasy and into the escape by taking on that aesthetic and by taking on that appearance. But also in that way, like vilifying drag culture and kind of almost flipping it and what it was supposed to do. And maybe, Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe that's just me diving into deep or, or I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say like making speculations or I don't want to say also just me overthinking it, but it does seem a little like contrary to, to what the point of drag should be because it is supposed to be this pivotal, pivotal point of strength and, and positivity. And it seems like, you know, it, it's taken and it's, it's vilifying that. Right. And it's also interesting to think about so much of drag culture is about the, the performance aspect too. And it's sometimes with drag performance, it's like you need that spectatorship. Like part of the, the aspect of performance relies on someone else, like in taking that performance as a spectator and like being a part of that as well. So it is really interesting because like I do think that there's a very large aspect of drag culture that is kind of um what's the word it's like it's like reciprocal. You know, we we have a performer but we also have an audience and they both kind of rely on each other to kind of complete the performance. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting how in things like Disney they're taking that aspect of performance and feeding it to a spectator or an audience as kind of that one-way street instead of a two-way street, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I did really like what you were referring to earlier about Ursa also, like, being this person that is, like, facilitating those ideas about Mm -hmm. sexuality and, like, gender politics. And that is, like, so much of what that performance does as well. But it's, you know, the villains are also those, a lot of times those people those people or those characters that are like questioning those types of things well, too. and they're the catalyst and, for the whole plot as well yeah. like you know what i mean you you need this quote-unquote villain just like you need like as an audience you need a you need a performer if you're if you're attending something like that and so i think yeah. it's interesting that like the villain is actually like the catalyst for often what happens in those types of movies right but i think so often like the person that you love to hate is the person that is going to take on that unique aesthetic mm-hmm. and even some like older films like i was thinking when you were mentioning the mentioning the rescuers bianca i was thinking of when carol burnett uh was an annie and you mm. know she's like the person that that oversees the orphanage and she you know sings that iconic little girl song but she's in her like lingerie and but she has like her thin brows and Mm -hmm. um you know she's got her her little like kimono on and her jewel jewelry on and it's a it's a calculative aesthetic Mm -hmm. that they have crafted Ooh, well, this was fun. And you know what? Now is perhaps a great time. I was thinking about, you know, Gianna, when you mentioned Rocky Horror. This is our last episode, obviously, for the month of September. But next week, we are diving right back into the spooky season. We are going to have spooky and Halloween-themed content all month long, all October long. And Gianna, you got me thinking about perhaps a Rocky Horror idea. Ooh, that could be fun. We'll have to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah.
I would, you know, I'm into like <laughs> sex aliens and I'm into <laughs> Tim Curry. Tim Curry is definitely on like people that I think are like so beautiful in this world is like Zendaya and Tim Curry. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, I mean, they make the list of like the most gorgeous people in the world in whatever universe they come from. I like it. I like Tim Curry on that list. Muppet Treasure Island, Tim Curry. Muppet Treasure Island. You want to know why we're bisexuals? It's because of Muppet Treasure Island. Let me tell you, Tim Curry and Muppet Treasure Island has nothing, nothing on Jack Sparrow. Absolutely (laughs) nothing. Goodbye. End of episode. (laughs) On that note... I feel very strongly. I, I agree. I agree. One thousand percent. I agree. No. Don't forget, you can donate to Art Pop Talks by Nia Coffee account if you like our content and you want to hear more. We would so appreciate your support. And if you're in the mood for a little given this fall, don't forget to donate to our friends over at Cultural Journal and their Kickstarter campaign. They are trying to raise money to launch not only digitally, but also in print. This is a really big deal, and your donations will make that a possibility. And more importantly, you make it possible for them to actually pay their contributors, including us here at Art Pop Talk. So um, if you feel like donating to their Kickstarter campaign, that would be amazing because that also helps us create more content as well. So you can find that link in our bio across our social media. And with that, I think, Gianna, we will talk to you all next Tuesday. Get ready for a very fun month of Halloween content. Bye, everyone. Bye. Art Pop Talk's executive producers are me, Bianca Martucci-Fink. And me, Gianna Martucci-Fink. Music and sounds are by Josh Turner, and photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond.